welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. In recent months, we have seen massive inflation in the U.S. and abroad, and with that, historic volatility in currency exchange rates. On this episode, we're going to explore the opportunities and pitfalls that this volatility could have for taxpayers. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by Howard Weiner, the principal in charge of KPMG's U.S. practice in London. Before KPMG, Howard was in the foreign currency branch of IRS chief counsel, where he was the principal drafter of the Euro regs. Howard is our resident guru on all things FX. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. So to combat inflation, the Federal Reserve has aggressively raised interest rates this year. We're recording this episode on Thursday, July 28th, the day after the Fed just announced yet another 75 basis point increase in the rate. With rising interest rates, the U.S. dollar has strengthened significantly against many major currencies. Indeed, just recently, the euro is on par with the dollar for the first time since the early 2000s. And the pound sterling and yen are both the cheapest they've been relative to the dollar in recent memory. These changes in exchange rates could result in significant foreign currency, or FX, gains or losses. But before we get too deep into our podcast, Howard, I'm sure our listeners would appreciate a high-level introduction to this area of the tax law which confuses even some of the most experienced U.S. tax professionals, as well as me. So could you give us a summary of how and when and maybe even why the U.S. taxes FX gains and losses? Sure, Gary, I'd be happy to. It's not uh, not uncommon. It's interesting because there are uh, so many of my colleagues much, much smarter than than me that when it comes to currency, there there seems to be a blind spot. And I think over the years, I've come to the conclusion, it's because we all talk about foreign currency whenever we're dealing with any kind of transactions or items that aren't in US dollars. But when we are dealing with foreign currency in a tax sense, we really have to divide the world into at least two categories, I think two principal categories. One is the rules relating to the translation of foreign currency, and and the other is dealing with transactions. I think even making it more confusing is the fact that the word foreign currency doesn't even exist in the tax law. Um, There's there's other terminology which we'll, we'll discuss. So let's start first with translation. So it's fairly simple in principle when uh, a taxpayer owes funds to the U.S. government, it's required to make those payments in U.S. dollars. It's required to compute its taxable income in U.S. dollars. But multinational, multi-currency, multi-jurisdictional enterprises are unable, of course, to determine their worldwide calculation on a real-time basis for every transaction in dollars. So the code acknowledges that, and and it, it sets up a system under which um, each business unit will calculate its financial results in the currency of its environment. 
and we'll call a business unit a qualified business unit or QBU. So we'll just let's put some terminology for uh, the rest of the podcast. Qualified business unit, very simply, is a corporation, a partnership, or a separate in sort of the vernacular parlance, a branch of a, a, a partnership or a corporation. And that's that's the qualified business unit. And the functional currency is what we refer to as the currency of that environment. And, and so what the rules um, set out to do is allow companies to calculate the results of a QBU in the functional currency of that QBU. And then each QBU will come out with a bottom line income or loss. Everyone will come out with income or loss that may be in a currency other than the dollar. And at that point, there will be a set of conventions, a set of translation rules to take those results and translate those into U.S. dollars, depending on the type of entity. You know, is it a branch or QBU or is it a CFC? Is the item the guilty income for the year, or is the item a, a dividend? And depending on the the QBU that is uh, at issue, and depending on the item of income, there's going to be uh, different rules. And then with respect to items of income, where there is a current inclusion, uh, let's say, for example, a U.S. corporation has an operation in Paris that is operating in euro. Um, it earns 100 euro in year one. The rules will tell us that that 100 euro must be included in income at a current basis at the average exchange rate. Make the example easy and say it was one for one for the year. We would include $100 in year one on the tax return. If in year two, the 100 euro is brought back and the uh, 100 euro is only worth 80, there is an adjustment to be made that there would be a $20 loss. In this case, it would be under uh, a section 987, we'll, we'll talk about. And there's other mechanisms for doing the same. So bottom line, we one, calculate our results in functional currency, two, translate at the appropriate exchange rate for the item of income and the entity that is um, at issue. And then th in the case of current inclusions, we have a true up or a crystallization of those items when funds that have been taxed are brought back. So that deals with translation. Now, within a particular business unit, within a QBU, that QBU may itself be dealing with a currency other than its environment and other than the dollar. So in the case of a QBU that deals with specific kind of items that are not part of its environment, those are called 988 transactions because it's under uh, the code section 988. That deals with currency items uh, outside the functional currency, non-functional currency items that are in one of three categories. It's non-functional currency cash, non-functional currency debt, and non-functional currency derivatives, let's say forwards, options, and so forth. Those are the only 988 transactions. And again, in the parlance of most practitioners, foreign currency transactions is what they're normally referring to when they're talking about 988 transactions. All other transactions that may be uh, conducted in a non-functional currency 
For example, if a U.S. corporation were to buy machinery priced in euro, it would simply take a basis dependent on the amount of dollars the euro were worth on the date of purchase. And if they sold a piece of property in euro, the amount realized would just simply be the amount of dollars on that day. That's helpful, Howard. Let, let's drill in further on translation. I understand there are different conventions or rules for different entity types. Can you start with non-corporate entities? So when we talk about a non-corporate entity, we're going to be looking to Section 987. And again, the non-corporate entity, let's use as, as a paradigm, a U.S. corporation that has a branch in the euro, an operation in euro to simplify things. But it can be a, a CFC that has one currency, a CFC, for example, with a euro functional currency that may have a branch in Switzerland, in Swiss francs, would have the same issue of translation and then true up. So a brief background in 987, it came into the code in 1986, and it's quite a simple provision. It tells a taxpayer that has a QBU in a functional currency different than the taxpayer to do three things. One, to calculate the results in the functional currency of the QBU. So in the case of my example, we calculate the income or loss in euro. Everything is, is done in euro sales, cost of goods sold, expenses all in euro, we get a bottom line number. That's one. Two, we take our bottom line number and we translate that into the functional currency of the taxpayer, the home office. So in my example, the US at the average exchange rate for the year. And then three, I'll paraphrase, to make proper adjustments as promulgated by the secretary to account for the difference between the amount when it is earned and the amount when it is repatriated. And that should be done on a, on a cumulative basis, according to the code. We also know that the character of the gain or loss should be ordinary, and it should retain the same source as the the underlying earnings. So qu quite straightforward. The problem we've had is we're now in 2022. And as of today, we do not have an effective set of regulations to fully uh, implement 987. Uh, but the service has announced that any method that is reasonable will be accepted. And, and there are two main methods. Uh, one is the earnings and capital, which folks can find in the 1991 proposed regs. And the second is something called earnings only. Well, let's start with the easier one, the earnings only. You know, the, the QBU, it's going to earn euro each year. It's going to translate those euro into dollars at the average exchange rate. Under the earnings only, when we make remittances out of the pool, we're going to be comparing the spot rate on the euro that is, or property denominated in euro, uh, that is uh, translated back into U.S. dollars on the date that is remitted, and compare that spot rate to the blended earnings of that pool. And that difference is your 987 gain or loss. When earnings and only is employed, we're doing the same thing, except we're going to add to that pool contributions of property. 
and those will also be blended into one big pool rate. So what we're doing is taking earnings and contributions that are um, accumulated over many years. When a distribution is made, that distribution is compared to the blended rate of those earnings and contributions. So what we have is in an environment like we have now, when we have a U.S dollar home office and just about every other currency has fallen against the US dollar. We're going to expect under either method to have significant 987 built in losses. That is the earnings and those contributions that were made in the past are going to be worth less in dollar terms than than today than they were when when they were um, contributed and they were earned. So when we look at remittances and we look at the recognition, there's really two categories. So one is just a transfer, a remittance being a transfer of property. We, we make a, a, a dividend distribution under a check the box entity from a, a legal standpoint. Um, and when we do that, we're just going to simply take the value of that legal distribution and spot rate it and compare it to the blended pool rate. The other termination, the other remittance that, that we um, often see employed is a complete termination of the QBU. And that can happen when a branch goes out of business, but more often we'll see that upon an incorporation of a QBU, a reverse check the box, an election to, to turn a disregard into a corporation or a contribution of a disregarded entity into a corporation. Those two transactions are, are treated as terminations of the QBU. And that would, it, it, before there was some IRS guidance put out to, to police some uh, transactions that were deemed abusive, would be a complete termination and a deemed remittance of 100% of the pool which would be spot rated and compared to the historic blended rate of the earnings and, and capital in the case of an earnings in capital. However, um, taxpayers need to be aware that in the 2016 final regulations, which are generally not effective, they've been postponed as an effective date um, a matter, there is a provision which is effective, which says on an outbound contribution of a QBU, from a U.S. corporation to a CFC, 987 loss is effectively built in to the basis of the stock of that CFC. And so it wouldn't be recognized until that CFC is, um, is ultimately sold. However, when it comes to a CFC to CFC transfer, so if there is a U.S. dollar CFC, that's holding a non-US dollar branch, and that branch is incorporated or transferred, that provision is not applicable. That is a complete termination. And if there's a loss in, in that 987 pool, that loss could trigger a, a tested loss. So Howard, what about CFCs? How would translation work there? So CFCs, similar mechanism with a few differences. The convention for CFCs is to translate 
tested income or lost at the at the average exchange rate with respect to subpart F for the year, also at the average exchange rate. Uh, 956 distributions are translated at year end and dividends are translated at spot rate. For purposes of the true up with respect to the amount included in guilty in a particular year versus the amount of previously taxed earnings and profits that are brought back, Section 986C governs that transaction. And again, there is no final guidance on the specifics of how that should be calculated. But there is a notice put out in 1988 that tells taxpayers to pool the post-86, then PTI, and now um, PTEP, and and recognize currency uh, gain or loss on a pooled basis. In the case of PTEP, uh, we would have our separate categories of PTEP. We'd maintain the functional currency PTEP. We would have a U.S. dollar basis based on the inclusion. And as 959 tells us, when distributions are made out of the various pools, we would recognize gain or loss uh, equal to the difference in each pool. On that point, one thing that to keep in mind, notice 8871 tells you that, that on a sale for which 1248 is relevant, that there's a deemed distribution of PTAP solely for purposes of 986 calculation. I think that's right. an, an issue that, that often gets missed and one to keep in mind. So Howard, it sounds like distributions or repatriation of the U.S. in a strong USD environment generally results in FX losses. But when would the strong dollar actually result in FX gain? Where we're going to see the strong dollar resulting in FX gain would be in the transaction area of foreign currency. So as we discussed earlier, there's three types of Section 988 transactions. It's it's cash, it's debt, and, and derivatives. So in the case of an obligation in a non-U.S. currency by a U.S. functional taxpayer, if a U.S. taxpayer were to have borrowed 100 euro when the euro was 125 and now is able to pay back those 100 euro when uh, 100 euro is worth 100, there would be a $25 um, gain. There's $25 of economic enormous. So where we're seeing gains and some particularly troublesome transactions would be where a U.S. parent may borrow a large sum of non-functional currency as a hedge of its foreign operations for gap purposes. It is able to manage the volatility of the currency from a balance sheet standpoint. If there is, uh, and that obligation becomes due, the gain would be recognized upon repayment, but there would not be an offsetting loss because the asset being hedged would be stock of a CFC, which is likely not, there's no desire to uh, dispose of. So there are taxpayers looking for ways to maintain that hedge without recognizing that gain. And one thing to consider 
would be extending that loan without triggering the 1001-3 significant modifications. And one way to do that is to at least not to extend that loan past the safe harbor of 50% of the term. So we've discussed how distributions of PTEP can trigger FX gain or loss. And you mentioned avoiding the significant modification rules to avoid FX gain or loss. But what other types of transactions can trigger currency gain or loss? The most simple would be a a repayment of a debt, either from a repayment from the creditor side or the obligor side would trigger that debt. In the case of holding cash, of course, disposing that, translating that non-functional currency cash or disposing of a derivative. In the case of debt, there's a number of other transactions. Section 988, by its terms, looks to other provisions of the code for purposes of timing. 988 tells us that the source of 988 gain of loss is resident source and the character is ordinary, but generally defers to the rest of the code with respect to timing. So generally a non-recognition transaction is non-recognition for purposes of section 988. However, there are certain transactions which are accepted. One would be a contribution of a debt obligation from a parent to its sub, where the sub is the obligor, notwithstanding that that may be a Section 351 transaction with no gain or loss, there would be a recognition of the currency gain or loss in that case. So recognizing FX losses certainly seems like it would be a good thing. But are there situations where taxpayers would prefer not to recognize an FX loss? You know, I think the the one area where a tax loss may be detrimental to the taxpayer would be in the FTC area, where um, it gets complicated, particularly in the case of CFCs and the the complexity of our guilty calculation and the basketing. There are many taxpayers that could uh, end up with a loss of its FTCs by triggering losses that would eliminate any limitation that it might have in a particular basket. So that that is one thing that must be looked at and and taxpayers need to model the potential benefit of any foreign currency losses compared to the benefit that they may have through uh, taking foreign tax credits. The other is again, just the, the general foreign source loss in the case of section 987 and 986C just when it comes to the the foreign tax credit calculation. Howard, on that guilty point, is is the point of the guilty FTC that the gain or loss, the FX gain or loss on the PTEP follows the basket of the underlying income that that created the PTEP? Right. Any implications for FX in the context of M&A? Gary, yeah, this is is an area where there are are really massive traps for the unwary, an area I deal with a a lot, unfortunately, sometimes too late. Let me give you the paradigm example. U.S. corporation wants to buy a non-U.S. corporation that's denominated in euros. Let's say today, just to make the example understandable, 
we have a purchase for 100 euro. And today, the exchange rate is one for one. So company is happy to pay $100 for this company. But closing is not for 30 days. And it needs to come up with 100 euro in 30 days. The problem with that is if in 30 days, the 100 euro were worth more, they may not have the, the, the funds that they were anticipating to make that purchase. So what they do is they enter into a forward contract. That forward contract is itself a 988 transactions, straightforward contract. The taxpayer enters into a contract with an investment bank and says, bank in 30 days, I'll pay you $100 and you pay me 100 euro. The pricing of course may be a little bit different. There may be some costs and forward rates, but in general principles, that's what the transaction looks like. If in 30 days, 100 euro worth $120, in the absence of making any special identifications, the transaction results would be a $20 gain on the forward contract because the bank would be giving um, the taxpayer 100 euro, which would be $120, and the taxpayer would be giving the bank $100. So that is $20 a gain. In addition, the taxpayer would take a $120 basis in the corporation. So one might say, well, well that, 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 that seems to work. There was gain and then you, you took a basis. Well, the problem is liquidity. The taxpayer now has a, a, you know, a $20 gain, but it has no cash. The, the only time we'll recognize that gain is upon sale of that corporation. But there is a fix so long as there's an identification of that forward contract on the day that the taxpayer enters into the forward contract and there is a contract to purchase that stock. In that case, there is no gain or loss. There is no $20 gain or loss. There is simply a basis of $100 taken in the CFC, which makes economic sense because at the end of the day, the U.S. corporation only paid $100 for that stock paid it to the bank, but that's really all it paid. So we've had several episodes on Pillar 2 and the globe rules and discussed how these will impact uh, U.S. multinationals. What do we need to know about FX in the context of the Pillar 2 discussion? As you, you look at the globe rules and the reliance on book income, we need to understand how book income taxes the currency gains and losses versus U.S. tax. For the most part, Section 988 gains for book are treated similarly. There will be timing differences, but, but those timing differences under the globe rules should not prove problematic, and there should be an alignment between uh, U.S. tax and the globe rule when it comes to Section 988 transactions with respect to non-functional currency or non-functional currency debt. Uh, when it comes to Section 987 and 986C, that is the foreign currency gains and losses with respect to a branch or with respect to PTAP, what 
will generally happen from a book standpoint. The gains and losses, and therefore the tax expense as well, will run to equity. We're not going to see the gains and losses that might be triggered in section 987 and 986 in the profit and loss statement. And so, although we may get a tax benefit, it would not reduce income. So I could see that might be an area where there would be a significant uh, loss under one of those provisions, creating a, a problem under Pillar 2. One last thing, inflation has been a, obviously a hot topic. Well, most of our listeners have probably been focused on inflation at home and at the gas pump. What issues related to inflation outside the U.S. should people be aware of? The, uh, the tax code does have provisions that address hyperinflation, and that's where the CPI of that country is greater than 100% over a three-year period. And so in that case, there is a different calculation of the results of a foreign operation. They're no longer going to calculate all of their operations in that functional currency and simply translate the bottom line income or loss. Rather, there's going to be a mechanism where they will have to translate certain items on their balance sheet and income statement into U.S. dollars throughout the year based on various conventions. And so it's important that taxpayers be aware of that. Uh, currently, the one major currency that is under these rules is the Argentina peso. And um, the other country to look out for, which is not yet hyperinflationary, is Turkey. In addition, there are rules for taxpayers having debt instruments denominated in a hyperinflationary currency. So if a U.S. taxpayer is holding Argentinian peso debt, it will be required to mark that debt to market as opposed to waiting for realization principles. Those are the main areas where inflation is relevant to the tax code. Thank you, Howard, and thanks for joining me today to discuss this timely topic. The rules for FX gains and losses are complex, which is all the more reason to keep them on your radar, since they can creep up in unexpected situations. And as we discussed today, in these times of volatility, FX can result in significant U.S. tax consequences. I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to revisit FX issues again in the podcast. In the meantime, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.